The way I would describe what's happened in, you know, the Pope Francis years, rather than looking up, looking the vertical, <laughs> it's all horizontal. And it's not certainly all horizontal, but that's what's emphasized. Everything's about looking to each other and having conversations. And frankly, talking about things that are, are answered questions. My friends, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to this next guest because you know him very well. None other than Bishop Joseph Strickland. We were very, very blessed to be in Tyler, Texas with Bishop Strickland. We were there for the final vows of Mother Miriam, which I know you've already seen. And if you haven't, go check out the show uh, with Mother Miriam. Uh, and we were down there for her making her final vows taken by Bishop Strickland. Now, Bishop Strickland, he's like an enigma to people. How can this one bishop seem to get it when almost none of the bishops on the entire planet get it, with a few notable exceptions, Bishop Schneider, etc. Why? How is that even possible? You know what? We were able to find out. I was stunned to learn this from a close friend of his. And uh, I'm just going to read you this. This is from Rich Conine, who was gracious enough to work with us as we were going down to Tyler. This is his explanation, uh, right before you get the bishop's own, um, of uh, why Bishop Strickland gets it, whereas nobody else seems to. Listen to this. If you go to our cathedral at 7 a.m. on Friday, you'll find the bishop saying Mass. But if you go at 5.15 a.m., that same morning, you'll find the good bishop on his knees before the Blessed Sacrament. He's there for at least 90 minutes, and all are welcome to join him in the adoration of our Lord. If you go to the chancery at noon, you'll find the bishop celebrating Mass there, at its small chapel, and again, before his Mass, you'll find him in adoration for at least an hour. If you want to know who is Bishop Strickland, says Rich Conine, then you have to pursue our Lord, because the good bishop is simply always in prayer. That really answered my question about how can Bishop Strickland get it, but I want you to hear for yourself from the man himself. Stay tuned for this episode of the John Henry Weston Show. Hey, my friends, now is the time to stand up and fight. We are just about to have the Synod on Synodality, and everything that you've seen indicates that it's going to be an absolute disaster. We have Father James Martin as a personal appointee of the Pope speaking at it. We've got Cardinal Supic, Cardinal Tobin. These picks of the Pope to engage in this Synod are indicative of where we're going. We're going into heresy. And at these times of great crisis, the church, especially those called in the laity to work for the glory of Christ and his church, are called to gather and strategize. Back in 2014, LifeSite launched something called Rome Life Forum. It was a gathering at that point of some 75 life and family leaders from all around the world to strategize as to what we could do. And when we gathered, the majority of people were most concerned about what? About Pope Francis, about what was going on in Rome. But this was 2014, but the life and family leaders saw it first. Now, a decade on, we are confronted with some of the most severe challenges the church has ever faced. And so our tradition at LifeSite is to continue with Rome Life Forum, which has continued every year until we had to take a break over COVID because we weren't permitted, but we're starting it up again. Please come. 
if you feel so called, to Rome, October 31st and November 1st, the very end of the Synod on Synodality, and uh, we'll be there to strategize with His Eminence, with His Excellency, and with many life and family leaders from around the world. For LifeSite News, this is John Henry Weston, and may God bless you. Bishop Strickland, welcome to the John Henry Weston Show. Thanks, John Henry. We always begin with the sign of the cross, if you wouldn't mind leading us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It is a great joy, it is a great privilege for me to be here with you, and um, to support you, and to do whatever we can to help you in this beautiful diocese. We want to learn a little bit about you. How uh, did you get to be a bishop? You are a farm boy from Texas, and uh, here you are a bishop. How did you get there? Well, it's just been a, um, an interesting journey. Nothing too dramatic about it. Um, grew up, as you allude to, on 100 acres outside of a little town, Atlanta, Texas, here in the Diocese of Tyler, which was at that point the Diocese of Dallas. Grew up in the Diocese of Dallas, went to the seminary, uh, a, a diocesan seminary in Irving, a suburb of Dallas, associated with the University of Dallas, uh, a great uh, Catholic school. Was there for eight years in the seminary, ordained for the Diocese of Dallas. And uh, my first assignment was to Immaculate Conception Church here in Tyler, the only Catholic church in the county at that time, in, we're in Smith County. Um, a year and a half later, it becomes the Diocese of Tyler. So I became a, one of the founding priests of the Diocese of Tyler. There were 35 priests when the diocese began. Um, I was the youngest at that point and for a while, and then we, you know, gradually added seminarians and all. How did I get to be a bishop? Honestly, I think what happened with the diocese being created, then it just created a situation where I worked closely with my three predecessors, Bishop Herzig, the first bishop, didn't live very long, sadly, but I worked with him. He asked me to be vocation director. So I was already getting pulled into not just, I always envisioned just working in parishes um, because I really didn't know the bishop in Dallas very well as a seminarian. And so I, I never even dreamt of being a bishop, you know, didn't, you know, not wanted, didn't want, I mean, it just wasn't in my world in the seminary and then early priesthood. But then um, I remember going to Mount Pleasant, and this was my second assignment. I was, I was here for four years as associate. I was pastor in Mount Pleasant for three years, then went to study canon law at the request of the bishops, and then came back and was made rector of the cathedral where I had been assistant. Um, I've told people I lived in that rectory longer than any other place in my life because I was rector for 16 years. Okay. It's very often that men become bishops that work closely with bishops and work in the chancery. And with, like I said, all three bishops, especially Bishop Carmody as rector of the cathedral. I was also with the canon law degree. I was the judicial vicar of the, the diocese, worked in the tribunal for 15 years. So all of that puts you in the chancery world. and as much as anything, makes you known to the bishop and sort of makes you more of a close associate than a lot of the priests are that may be in great priest out in a, in a parish, but they just aren't um, in the chancery so much. And then 
I was uh, asked to, I was chosen by the consultors to be the um, administrator between Bishop Edmund Carmody and Bishop Alvaro Corrada. That was the year 2000. I was administrator of the diocese. So I think that that um, really propelled me more toward, you know, one day being a bishop because being an administrator, I was administrator for about, uh, about a year and, you know, you're, you're administering the diocese. You don't have the authority of a bishop, but you have limited authority to basically make sure things continue. Um, even had the delegation to, to celebrate confirmation for the, the sake of the faithful. And so I was, I'd celebrated a lot of confirmations before I ever became a bishop. And part of my whole routine was to say, you know, it was sort of a teaching moment that I'm not a bishop, so what am I doing confirming? But I had the special delegation of being administrator and that, you know, just, so I, that was my routine of celebrating confirmation. And then I had to shift a bit when I actually became the bishop. That was back in November of 2012. So um, as I tell people, I'm about 100 miles from that 100 acre farm that I grew up on. And it was, it, it's not like, you know, we, we lived off the farm. I mean, we grew um, vegetables and had horses and cows and dogs and cats, you know, just typical country life. But my father actually worked for Motorola Communications most of the time as I was a kid, two-way radios. I mean, it's what I always heard about that he would, and interestingly, as I've thought about it, his sales territory was pretty much the Diocese of Tyler. Um, he used to go to Lufkin and Nacogdoches and Tyler. As kids, we would come to Tyler for the big city vacation. You know, we'd come, my father was still working. Our family's seven kids total, five um, still living, and six of us grew up together. And uh, we had sort of an older three and a younger three. I was part of the younger three. The older ones said, we didn't go have vacation anywhere. But we had a couple of days staying in a hotel here in Tyler. And people always ask me, you know, what's it like being a bishop where, you know, I was the kid priest and then I was the rector of the cathedral. I was one of the, the priests for all those years. And I think it really helped to have been the administrator because I already, you know, by the grace of God, I didn't get stupid and I didn't, you know, say, oh, I'm a big dog, I'm an administrator. And I just served and tried to cooperate with the men and tried to help them deal with things that they needed to deal with, even though we didn't have a bishop. And I, I think most of the priests um, appreciated, you know, my kind of low-key approach and just trying to help and not lauded over them or anything, which, you know, to me would have been kind of ridiculous, but it can happen. You know, it kind of goes to your head that, to think even temporarily you're administering the diocese. So I had a good rapport with the priest, and, and I have to say I was very humbled um, all the way through, and I've, I've really felt a, a deep call in prayer and just as a bishop to really care for the priest, to, to be there for them, to try to help support them. And in recent years, there are many priests from really around the world. I mean, not hugely around the world, but some men in, in other countries and a lot of men here just reaching out to me for support, just to answer questions or whatever. And, and I've, been, I've been glad to do that because I've, I've really felt a call to, to support priests and encourage them to be the men of prayer that I think all ordained ministers are 
called to be, deacons, priests, and bishops, and especially the priests and the bishops. With all that's going on in the world and the church today, it's actually critical for us to devote time to prayer and retreat as our Lord did in the Gospels. Now, there are perhaps few better ways to do so than to take a pilgrimage and follow in the very footsteps of Jesus Christ himself on a journey through the Holy Land. LifeSite News is proudly sponsored by the Franciscan Foundation of the Holy Land, which is now offering a rare opportunity to elevate your faith. Join Father Peter F. Vasco, a Franciscan priest and native, to the region for nearly 40 years as he guides you through the heart of the Holy Land on a 10-day tour through Israel. Watch the Bible come to life as you visit sacred holy sites, walk the ancient streets of Jerusalem, visit the Nativity Church built over the grotto of Jesus' birth, pray in the upper room at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and much, much more. For information on this outstanding opportunity, visit the Franciscan Foundation for the Holy Land at www.ffhl.org. That's www.ffhl.org. Or call 855-500-3345. That's 855-500-3345. And now, back to the program. You entered the church at a very interesting time. November 2012 is right on the cusp of a kind of a revolution in the church. A lot in the pro-life movement would describe it as um, a time before that when there might have been a lot of bishops, maybe even priests and, and maybe even bishops or sometimes a lot of bishops who didn't agree with what you were doing in the pro-life movement. They were thought, thinking, oh, they're too rigid and, you know, or they're, they're daring to confront the law with rescuing or to, with, with even... <laughs> Suggesting, you know, going up front of cl clinics and suggesting to women, please come, we have something else, a better way for you. Um, and so you weren't supported, but you were massively supported by John Paul II. Um, you always felt the Pope had your back as a, as a pro-life activist. And uh, you felt the same with Benedict because you knew while John Paul II was rah-rah with you, Benedict was writing the documents that supported everything you did. So it was beautiful. Um, that changed right after um, 2013 where that feeling was gone. You've been in that milieu, the new milieu, almost your whole life as a bishop. What is your take on all of this? The church is in a very different time. You grew up in a, in a time under JP2 and Benedict, and the church was one way. It's, it's a very different time right now. I'm a simple guy. I, I'm, I don't claim to be a the theologian. I, I believe profoundly in Christ and his church. Um, Really, honestly, it's easy to, for me to get emotional about it because it is just so profoundly important and beautiful to me. And in that context, I think that the best way I can describe where we are, and you know, I went in the seminary in 1977, um, and really, as I look back on the years of St. John Paul the Great, that's what I like to call him, uh, that was, it was sort of rebuilding, the, making the church again robust in its beauty and its clear theology and in, and I guess the way I would frame it, um, I mean, the cross. John Paul II and then Benedict were really pulling us to the vertical again, to look to the heavens, to look to God, I mean, here we are celebrating the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You know, look to the heavens. That's why in architecture, churches are built 
to just drive the eyes out. I mean, the great technologies and everything of today, I mean, a lot of it's used in the internet world. They know how to get people's attention. And, you know, in the ancient church, architecture got people's attention. Um, and it, it said, look up, look to the heavens and the beautiful ceilings and domes and, and just the whole sweep of the architecture was to look up. Um, and I think John Paul, and like you said, Benedict and John Paul in different ways were saying, look to God, look to the heavens, look to the, your higher self. And I think the way I would describe what's happened in you know the Pope Francis years, um, and it's certainly not all Pope Francis, but it's a whole milieu, as you say, of rather than looking up, looking the vertical, <laughs> it's all horizontal. And it's not certainly all horizontal, but that's what's emphasized. Look to each other, be in community, have conversations, but instead of saying, well, the answers are up there, let's look up there. Instead, it's, well, let's just all have conversations. Um, that, to me, is, is a very basic change. And honestly, I think that's what has put me where I am and where I've kind of grown to be as a bishop of, in, a, in November, it'll be 11 years, of more or less in conflict with that new worldview, in a sense, of the church, so that everything's about looking to each other and having conversations. And frankly, talking about things that are, are answered questions. Uh, we don't need to have a discussion, in my opinion, about things where we have the answer. I mean, going and if, if anything, and I, I hope and pray that, you know, after I'm gone, they'll say Bishop Strickland stood for the sanctity of life and the sanctity of the, of the unborn. To me, that's the preeminent linchpin of all of it. If the life of the most innocent, sacred child in the womb, the potential that a newborn child or a newly conceived child has, it's the potential of God in the world, of all kinds of possibilities. We should treasure that beyond anything and foster that and just celebrate every time a child is conceived. And we're so far from that in our culture, and sadly, even as you allude to, with too many in the church, it's, it's a little bit shaky. We, we should be absolutely crystal clear that the greatest gift the world has is a newly conceived child. And instead, it's all, all the negative is just heaped on, on that reality to the point where, I mean, we have presidents and other world leaders that, I mean, too many people in Congress, too many people in the church that are saying, oh, well, you need to have options. I mean, I just saw another political candidate coming out that, you know, said, oh, well, you know, he supports abortion from uh, up until birth. It's diabolical. It really is. It is anti-God. It is anti-human. And, you know, people go after me constantly. I'm, I'm glad to, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that I can make mistakes or I don't know that clearly, but the sanctity of the, the life of the unborn, there are no questions. Science supports it. Every rational being supports it. We have to always be compassionate toward the people that are deluded. But sadly, 
too many, even leaders in the church these days are deluded to think, you know, something less than the sanctity of the life of every child conceived. There are no exceptions. There's no, because again, going back to this is God's gift and whatever the, yeah, there's tragic circumstances and unintended circumstances. But when a child is conceived, it always has the potential of transforming the world. I mean, think about the great saints. They were conceived in a womb, just like you and I were, just like every human being. I mean, they're trying to even mess with that now, but you know, that's ridiculous. How do we come into the world, a man and woman come together, hopefully in a loving relationship of matrimony for life and open to those children. Um, that's part of the brokenness as well. But a lot of what the pushback I've gotten is that, and again, it's, it's the vertical understanding of that child in the womb is directly from God. The, the, the man and woman didn't create it. They cooperated. That, that is procreation, but it's God who gives life. And that child is a pristine gift from God. Yes, original sin, and we need to get them baptized, but you know, they've not committed any personal sin when they're conceived in the womb. And they have the potential of being the greatest saints and transforming our world by keeping that vertical connection with God from their conception. So it's our mission to foster, as I know you and your wife have done the best you can, to foster that connection to God because we're created in His image and likeness. We are of God. And that would be, I guess, that even, you know, certainly the church is, is affected deeply by it and in some ways corrupted by a world that has turned its back on God. And too many people in the church are, are sort of giving God a cold shoulder, even claiming to be Catholic, claiming to be committed to the church, but you can't sort of be halfway Catholic. I mean, and so I think that 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 image of of looking too horizontal and just sort of staying in the world, looking to each other and forgetting we came from God. We need to keep looking to God and being lifted to our, our highest potential by God's grace. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. One of the things that often people say with regard to the life issue is that, you know, what about immigration, for instance? It's a big issue. It's uh, an issue coming up in politics right now and, and we've been dealing with it for years already. It, it's it's a life issue every bit as important, maybe more important than abortion, than, than, than the right to life in the womb. Uh, there's also people outside the womb. How come you pro-lifers don't care about people outside the womb? Uh, and so on and so forth. Um, how does abortion compare to immigration on 
the, that kind of, you know, how, what, what are Catholics to discern about that relationship? I believe we have to see that all of the evils, and they're tremendous evils, uh, I mean, human trafficking, the, the border issues, all the, the transgender, I mean, there's, it's just overwhelming. I think logically and according to the truth that God has revealed to us, it traces back to a lack of respect for human life. If the respect isn't there for the one who has no voice, who has no wealth, who has no power, who has no influence, who has nothing. I mean, even a you know, very innocent young child, at least they can scream. The child in the womb can't even do that. They, I mean, we're probably familiar with the silent scream. I mean, that's an image that is very telling. Um, so, and that, you know, I know that many in the church and, and otherwise in the culture, and, you know, the border issues are devastating, but to me it traces back to decisions that are made and the ways people are treated. I mean, so much of it is the drug trafficking that is tied to that, people being used instead of, treasured and so it all ties together as i see it logically and spiritually it all ties back to it's almost sadly a consequence i believe of you know being ready to i mean we don't need to get too graphic about the reality of what abortion is but it's literally chopping up human bodies ripping them apart and so and it's, it's interesting, when we see that happening, sadly, sometimes that sort of thing or that kind of violence toward another child or innocent person happens in our world constantly, at the border or in our broken cities or all kinds of ways. And thankfully, people will still respond in horror to an image like that. But we've forgotten the horror of it happening in the womb, and that lack of horror there sort of creeps out to, oh, well, we're a little too complacent about some of the, the other issues. But we can't start with fighting over border issues, in, in my opinion. We have to start with a new culture that recognizes the sanctity of life. If you recognize that, then super wealthy means super helpful to the people of God instead of building bigger and bigger mansions and having just you know, obscene things that because you've got the money, you can, you know, have just things that no person could ever need or should ever want if they have any sort of balanced understanding of what life is. That's part of what drives the border is super wealthy people that are taking advantage of people who have nothing, that are closer to being in the womb. The same thing with, I mean, the border issues, but then you get to the euthanasia and older people, I just read something about, you know, in California, the assisted suicide rate is just going through the roof. Again, a lack of the value of life and a lack of understanding. I mean, people are just saying, well, life's not so good. Quality of life has gone down. So I'm opting out or we're opting you out for you. You know, it just gets so messed up. And to me, we get sanity when we go back to Life is from God, life is sacred, and we have to have that foundation firm. And then, I mean, you as a successful man have to ask yourself, how much do you need? How, how do I share what I've been blessed with through a lot of hard work, 
but also through blessings from God. How do we be brothers and sisters to each other instead of, you know, squandering wealth on, you know, unnecessary luxuries that forget that they're people that don't have a home, don't have clothing, don't have food. And, and that's all woven into the border issues. I mean, it's very complicated and also very simple to me. As you were speaking, I thought, wow, that whole concept makes for a beautiful rejoinder when anybody says you don't care about immigration. Actually, no, I totally care about immigration. If you uh, don't care about the child in the womb, you don't care about immigration because it flows right to that and to every other issue we deal with. That's the first border that people can't cross is the womb. They can't even be born. They can't get into the world. And, you know, so. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.